Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. As we begin this morning, uh, uh, last week I thanked the fellows who uh, taught the class during April when I neglected one. And the one I neglected would have an Apostle Paul attitude. I am the least among the teachers. So we thank Frank also for teaching the class. This morning, we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And I think this morning we're going to be doing verses 23 to 32. The first page of the notes in your outline are going to be a little different. I've just left out some things to kind of move along. But, you know, I'm always in betwixt and between what to say as a personal issue. And so, do I say things? Do I not say things? And so I would always rather take the side of saying things as you probably already know. And I've shared this before, and I want to share it again. For me, the activity of teaching and speaking is not an issue. I have been doing this since I was 19 years old. And so for me, it is as natural to do this as it is to breathe. But you have to remember this, and those who have taught and preached will know what I'm saying. Those who have led covenant groups and given counsel will have an idea of what I'm talking about. When it comes to ministering the word of God, God moves in our hearts by the Spirit who administers the eternal decree and counsel and will and wisdom and etc. of God as he gives it to us in his word. And so all we know and have of God by the Spirit is contained within the pages of this book which we call the Bible. And the most significant And the centrally necessary work that is done in our lives and is received is the instruction of this word, the sharing of the word. There's nothing more important in life than we hear, we recognize, we receive and understand And we walk in God's word. Amen. There's nothing more important because today is our preparation for eternity. And as we are today in the body of Christ. And as we are today as believers individually walking with the Lord. Will very much constitute... Not our entrance into the kingdom of heaven because we are saved by the blood of Christ. But our status, our role in this eternal kingdom. The rewards that 
we will or will not receive in this kingdom. The showering of the pleasing of God upon us, not in relation to our being his family, but in relation to our walk upon the earth. And many believers don't get that. And so if there's anything that the enemy opposes, I think, more than anything else, it is this instruction of his word, of God's word. This is where he bears down and comes against all of us to some extent, and especially those who are given the great grace undeserved, quizzical to understand why, the grace of teaching, instruction, sharing. And I say all of that, it's a lot of words just to say this. I am continually pounded by the enemy. And I'm not saying this for you to say, oh, Peter, you know, dismiss all that. Just want to be real. And I want to be real because I know that in each one of us, there are levels of struggle when it comes to our reading the word and giving ourselves to the word and etc. And there's a reason because there's an opposition. John 10.10 is the opposition. For the thief cometh, remember, steal, kill, and destroy. You remember that. And so there is a continual pounding against me, me, when I get up here to teach. And I am most greatly concerned about this one issue. That I can teach this material. Andy, this isn't difficult to teach this material, is it? To teach the material. I mean, Jesus did this, they said that, they went there, they sat down. I mean, is that difficult? No. The mechanics, the content, right, Frank? That's not difficult. Where the rub comes in is hearing from God and being used by him in a way submitted enough where the Holy Spirit will communicate to each one of you not just material, but the very presence of God. So my prayer always is this, that when we teach or preach, those of us who are hearing the teaching and preaching, because I'm hearing it just like you are. I know you don't realize that, but I'm actually hearing what I'm saying like you are hearing what I'm saying. (laughs) That we will have met with God. All of that is a long request. That you continually pray for those who teach and preach. So that the benefit that God and the grace that God desires to shower upon us in this is freely distributed and freely received under the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we can say when we come to the school of the word, we can say when we go to covenant groups, we can say when we leave Sunday morning service, etc., The ladies can say when they're at the Bible studies. The men can say when they have some of their Bible studies. We met with God. We experienced and felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what you want? 
Isn't that what you want? So continue to pray. Let me just encourage you to continue to pray for that work of God. And I've also actually confessed my weakness here that I still struggle with the extent to which I really trust the Holy Spirit in overcoming my weaknesses. Did you catch that in all of this? I didn't say it, but hopefully you caught that. So this morning, long introduction, just felt to say that. Wanted to share that with you. Matthew 21, verses 23 to 32. So as we've seen, Jesus enters Jerusalem and he does two shocking things. He comes in being praised and anticipated and received as the king. This great man is coming to Jerusalem. This wonderful man of miracles. This man who has given us such hope. Such anticipation. Could this be the prophet? Remember in Deuteronomy 18.15. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be God's king? Could this be the son of David who has come back to Jerusalem to restore God's kingdom, Israel, as the place of God's rule and as the place of his overcoming all the enemies, such as Rome in particular? Could this be this king? What a wonderful coming in. Oh, what a great joy. And so he enters and he does two things that begin to accentuate and anticipate why he's there. He, he cleanses the temple and he curses the fig tree. And in those two actions, he is stating clearly to the leadership, not so much to the people because they're not going to get this, but to the leadership I am here to put an end to the way that you have, been, you have been administering the old covenant. I am here as the king who is going to put an end to the old temporary covenant and bring about the new. And these men, these leaders, I think, Perhaps many of them, I don't know if all, but perhaps many of them, and it seems to be pretty clear when you read some of their statements, they actually were afraid that he was the Messiah, in fact, and that he had come, in fact, to displace them. Now, you would have thought, oh, he's here. Thank God he's here. But you see, Unregenerate man does not receive the gospel that way. Unregenerate man, you know, men in their sin, men and women in their sin, refuse and reject the gospel all the time. And when there's any receiving of the gospel and glad of the gospel, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, overcoming that rebellion of man's sin. And so the heart of the teaching of these People, these men who had created a stumbling block from God's people to worship him in spirit and truth. Remember in John chapter 4, he told the woman at the well, Jesus told the woman at the well, the day is coming and now is when God's people will worship him how? In spirit and in truth. And so 
the teaching of the leadership had put a stumbling block in that way. You remember that? They put a stumbling so they could not receive and they could not benefit from the faith system of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a faith in God's grace system. Don't anybody teach you that the Old Covenant was just law and regulations and it was not this and that and thank God Jesus has come to deliver us of that. No, the Old Covenant was a faith system in God's grace that anticipated the fullness in perfection of the same kind of work, the keeping of the law and the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin that would be fulfilled in one man. But the leadership had put stumbling blocks and had placed instead of removed the issue of faith. And rather than faith, I have sinned. I have not kept the Ten Commandments. I'm going to take my animal and I'm going to have it sacrificed. And I'm going to by faith receive the cleansing of my sin that God said he would do when I, when, when I do this. But they had put these stumbling blocks in. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to live this kind of way and whatever. And they were overcoming and undermining God's way of salvation. And the heart of the problem is this. They were rejecting God's autonomy. They were rejecting God's autonomy and sovereignty. That's the heart of the matter. You see, because every time we sin, we are purposefully rejecting God's autonomy and sovereignty. We're not just doing something bad. <laughs> It's not little white sins and little sins. Every sin. So in Genesis, oh boy, how did I forget Genesis? In Genesis chapter 3, when Satan says to the woman in verse 2, has God really said? I mean, Steve, did you miss that? Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Does he have the right? Does he have the right to tell you how to live? Does he have the right to tell you where to live? Does he have the right to tell you where you should work? What you should do with your money? With whom you should relate? Does he have that right? Well, of course, modern Christianity says no. Well, no, we don't, we're free to make our decisions. No, we're not. We're free to hear the autonomous work and will of God and obey it. Isn't that our freedom? And they were rejecting that. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem to put an end to that system. And so the rest of this chapter in chapter 22, and I want to move along, Matthew begins to deal with this issue of the autonomy of the leadership and their rejection of God's authority as he shares four different questions that are posed by the leadership and then one question that is posed by Jesus. And I gave you the references for that. Are those in your notes? Okay, and that's where we'll be going. So let's look at this morning. Verse 23. Let's look at verse 23. The question about Jesus' authority. And by the way, may I say this? Be very careful as we look at these men and their attitudes and their questions to be making sure 
that we are these men in the natural state. Amen? Let's make sure that before we were saved, we were these men. But even now, as believers, our flesh acts this way. And these are the kinds of questions and this is the attitude that each one of us has toward the will of God as to our natural man. And so let's not look at these questions and these attitudes and this opposition as look at those guys, look at those guys, but allow the Holy Spirit to say to you, my child, you're doing the same thing in this area. Ask God, not am I, (laughs) but where am I? Let that be your prayer this morning. Where am I rejecting your autonomy over me? Otherwise, we miss the import of what Jesus is doing. Verse 23, and when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, Hey, hey, by what authority? Why, what authority? Who are you that you were doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? Telling us what to do and how to do it and when to do it and all the other doings. Now, why did they ask by what authority? Well, very quickly, and I don't think Ronald went into this. I don't remember him going into this. If he did, I apologize for doing it twice. No, I don't apologize. I do a lot of things twice. What authority? Well, you remember the original temple was built by King Solomon. And then that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. you remember that? You saw the movie, I'm sure. Some of you must remember that. I was there, but you probably remember that. (laughs) Then uh, Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon, and the Jewish people could go home. And so in 536, about 50 or so thousand Jewish people go back home to Jerusalem and begin to build the temple. And the temple is finally completed about 519 or 520. But it's a much smaller temple in scale and so on, but it's completed. You read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and you'll see that. They finally have the temple. Well, by the time of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem, which occurs some 30 years before the birth of Jesus. They were being ruled by a man named Herod the Great. And Herod, historically, is a great, they call him great, because of his architectural achievements. I mean, without going into detail, go back and read about the seaport in Caesarea Philippi that this man constructed. And he took the temple... Without going into any background or reason, I had to fight all that. That's not important. And he embellished it or enlarged it. And he took the temple as it and made it huge. The temple complex, as I call it. And on the outermost part of the temple complex, every part of it, part of holy ground, was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a huge open area. And it was an area where the Gentiles, those God-fearing Gentiles, remember Cornelius in chapter 10 of Acts? He was a God-fearing Gentile. 
send for Peter. You remember that story? Those God-fearing Gentiles, those men and women who wanted to worship the God of Israel and to know the God of Israel, would come into the court of the Gentiles for prayer and worship. They weren't allowed to go any further because they weren't Jews. So they came there for a sacred purpose. And so when Jesus enters Jerusalem and he enters the temple complex and he looks around, there's a temple over there. And the temple complex is filled with Gentiles who have come to worship and to pray. And all of this merchandising is going on. He becomes furious, you see, because what has happened here is the merchandising or the activity of the world system has come into the very place where God's people and those who are seeking the Lord or being stumbled, I'm sorry, is creating a stumbling for these people to actually worship and pray. Jesus is furious about this and he drives them out. Why? Because they are an impediment to prayer and worship. That's what's happening here. How did it happen like this? Well, historically, it is thought It is thought that Caiaphas, the high priest, by his authority unilaterally said, let's do this for whatever political, economic reasons, whatever. And so he creates or allows this system to be created. So when Jesus comes in and throws out these people, he is what? Trumping the authority of the high priest. And so they want to know, hey, hey, we have the authority. Who are you? And who gave you the authority to have authority over us? Now, when I say that, does your mind go to issues in your life where you have had difficulty with some person of God? And I'm not trying to say the pastors and elders. (laughs) Please, don't get that. Some person of God who has come to you and shared with you something and you have said, hey, who are you? I don't receive that. We have to be very careful. Listen to it. Evaluate it. Compare it to the word of God. And finally, ask the Holy Spirit if this is for you. Even if it came from an obnoxious, hard-headed, you know, loud-mouthed man. Don't miss God because of the messenger. Get the message. We have to be careful of our rebellion in the natural man here. And so this is what's happening here. This is why they ask the question. Verses 24 and 25a. A means the first part of it. B means the second, right? Okay. Jesus answered them. Now, I love the way Jesus does things. He's going to give them an answer, but not the answer the way they want it. And it's certainly not the answer they want. See, what they, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just read it here. (laughs) Jesus answered him, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. I will ask you and you tell me the answer and I will tell you my answer. The baptism of John, mm, um, um, where did it come from? Heaven or from man? See, rather than falling into their trap by answering the question, Jesus is, rather than saying, 
I have authority from God. Bingo, arrest him, blasphemy. The conversation is shut down. I got you. <laughs> but you see, Jesus does not deal with the answer. I'm sorry, the question. On the surface level, he goes underneath to the heart issue. Someone came to me the other day. I go to Starbucks over there and in the morning and read, study, and sleep. I mean, whatever I do. And, oh, it's very effective. I paint open eyes with my glasses and sleep the whole time. You know, it's great. And he says to me, he says, Pastor, he says, do Jesus and Paul teach the same thing? Because I don't like Paul. And I said, well, I know this man. I said, uh, why don't we do this? Rather than me giving you a direct answer, go back and tell me the issues of Paul that you're not liking. There's something rather than me, well, of course they teach the same thing as one word of God. There's a continuity and yes, indeed, everything is a word of God. There's your answer, Annette, and take it home with you. Well, you see, that... Be careful of questions that you will get from people. And listen to the Holy Spirit's whispering to your heart in the question. Father, how do I answer this? Because typically so, so often, even from believers... There's something going on in the heart, whether something good or bad or whatever, that needs to be addressed. And it's more significant to answer the question. Listen, it's more significant to answer the question. Listen, it is more significant to answer the question in a way that ministers to the need of the heart than just give an answer to a question. Amen? We have to be careful. We have to be careful in this area. And this is what Jesus is doing. Verses 24 to, I'm sorry, 25b and 27a. And they talked about it among themselves. Uh, well, let me say this. I mean, you know, if we say from heaven, he's going to tell us, well, why don't you believe him, you know, if it's heaven. But if we say it's from man, we're afraid of the crowd. They're going to rise up and they're going to do some bad stuff because they did love John the Baptist. And they don't like us anyway, so what in the world are we going to do? We don't know. We don't know whether it was from heaven or from man. We, we don't know. Now, we can debate all day long. Did they really know or not? I think they knew. Or at least I think a lot of them had a real good idea. Why? Because they knew the scriptures. They saw the activity of this man, etc. Whatever. But they weren't going to answer. Because they weren't wanting to get caught themselves in a situation. And especially for the fear of the crowd. But you see, in reality, when they say they don't know, what are they doing? They are rejecting and resisting God's authority in John's ministry. That's what they're doing. So 27b, Jesus says, you didn't tell me, I ain't telling you. I mean, how many times you heard that? You're not telling me, I'm not telling you. Yeah. <laughs> but you see, Jesus is going to tell them. But he's going to give them an answer that deals with the root 
and not the fruit. Too often we're too inclined and too quick and undiscerning. We deal with the fruit and not the root. Let's be a people in our own lives and walk and in the lives of others within the context of the church that deal with the root of the matter, no matter what the fruit is at the moment. I mean, I can give you so many examples of folks coming in. It's interesting, and I certainly understand it. I really do commiserate. Husband and wife come into the office, and they are having terrific difficulties. And they want an answer of how to solve this. And we want to give them revelation of how this can be solved. Did you notice what I just did with my verbiage? They want to know how they can solve it. We give an answer how it can be solved. Did you, did you, that's this English active and passive. Because they aren't going to solve it, are they, Steve? It's going to be solved through revelation. Well, whatever. Just want you to be careful of how you listen. And so, the thing is, and I've had this to happen. Well, let's talk about this over here. Okay, Don. Gerald is really being mean to you, whatever, and you know, da 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 da. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That that disclosed that meeting, and so you want to know, you want to get this solved. Think, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. You know, to say it that way, I understand. So I, well, Don, let's talk about how you walk with God. Say what? What are you talking about? I came in here about Gerald. Kid, I came in here about him. Yes, you came in here about him. But you see, in every context, the issue is always about you and God and you and God. And if we don't go to that and get to the foundation and deal with the spiritual corruption at the foundational level. You, I can give you 52 things. I really couldn't, but let's say I could. Ways of solving this. And next week you're going to be back in my office saying none of them worked. Why? Because what happened is we built our answer upon a sieve. You know what a sieve is, remember? That's that round looking thing has holes in it. And we pulled the water of our counsel into a sieve and went out. Why? Because the tightness of the spiritual activity and fellowship and relationship with God and with one another is so dysfunctional that it creates vast holes that the counsel doesn't go anywhere except on the ground. Now, I say that, I, I, I don't plan to say all this today. I, I know I may not get through the material. But why am I saying? I don't know. But what I think is important here is this, that we are a church, the body of Christ, who are called not only to receive and give the counsel of God, receive it to ourselves and give it to ourselves, the counsel of God, to receive it from God and give it to ourselves. Amen? You know what I mean by giving the counsel of God? to myself. Myself, I will not do that. Self, you will not think that way, etc. But we're also called to do it among one another and ourselves. And we have to be careful how we do it and we have to be wise in the doing of it. And that's just a few thoughts this morning about that. So Jesus doesn't give them an answer directly, but gives them three parables that will illustrate their rejection of God's authority. 
He's going to answer them, but another way. And if you look at the life of Jesus, he very often does not give direct answers. Remember in John 4, the woman at the well? Man, she wants to know all kind of stuff. And he's talking about other things. And I didn't ask you about that. But, but Jesus, here's what I find. A believer, and let's say an unbeliever, to make it clearer that way. But it also applies to all believers. I'm a believer. You're a believer, right? Now, like it or not, and hopefully we do like and understand it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the authoritative word of God is in us. Amen? Do you receive that? Yes. What we have to say by the word of God should be said, needs to be said, and should be obeyed. And we should never be bashful. We should never be too, ha, ah, I don't know. No. We need to say it clearly and directly couched in care and all that, I understand. But we need to make it real clear to people. So someone comes up to you and objects to something or challenges you on something. Here's my word, sorry, here's what I believe the word of God is for us. And look at chapter 4 of John to give an indication. She started asking Jesus and whatever. And too often what happens is when somebody asks us questions or challenges us, John, what about that? All of a sudden we become defensive and we inadvertently in the way we respond begin to submit ourselves and put ourselves under the leading of the questioner and as a woman and man of God we are not under anybody's leadership other than the Holy Spirit And so feel free not to answer the question or to answer it in a totally different way, but take charge of the conversation and take it where God wants you to take it rather than where the person thinks you ought to go. Amen? Take charge. Not in a bully way. I know when you say take charge, oh my word, was it? No. Jesus took charge with this woman very carefully, gently, but directly and specifically. And he did that in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. And he does it over and over again. And he's doing it here. You see, as believers, we have the master. They don't. Can you say amen? The world doesn't. We do. So he gives two parables. 28 to 30. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. two sons. What is Jesus saying here? You people are like the what? The first of the second son. Remember which son obeyed? The first of the second. The, second. the first one did. And what Jesus is saying here is wanting is okay and willing is okay. I will go. Or saying is okay. But it doesn't mean that you will do it because too often that I will do it is a work of the flesh. 
But even if the work of the flesh says, I will not do it, aren't you glad that God can trump the work of the flesh? Have you ever heard this, God is a gentleman and will never make you do what you don't want to do? How many have ever heard that, that God is a gentleman and won't overstep your free will? How many of you heard that? Fooey. 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 I mean, I think a prime example of that is somewhere in Genesis where somebody was told to leave some city before it was going to be burned to the ground. Remember Genesis? I think it was 19. And Lot said, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And the angel of the Lord, by the way, that's the angel of Yahweh. That is a uh, pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus himself. He takes Lot by the hand and jerks him and drags him out of the city. Well, certainly God is autonomous, not us. Our free will is not autonomous. If it is, then God is not essentially who he is in himself. But there's teaching out there that wants to undermine the essential autonomy of God. So you see, God doesn't have autonomy. He is autonomous. God doesn't have power. I reject that. He is power. God doesn't have love. He is love. He is light. He is, that's why he calls himself, I am. So which one of the two obeyed the father? The first. Don't you know they hated to say that? And now Jesus begins to press the point. And they said the first. And with this parable, Jesus was showing that the Father's authority recognized, is recognized only on the grounds of the obedience of the Son. Our worship of God, our praise of God, our thanksgiving to God is expressed perhaps in various ways and in venues. But every bit of it must, absolutely must rest on the bedrock of our obedience to the word of God. So you remember what Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, what? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. For many will say to me, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. He didn't say, you didn't cast out a demon in my name. You didn't. He didn't see any of that. And you did mighty works in your name. And he said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Why? Because you see, their lives weren't revelatory of his presence and of his work and of his glory. Because it lacked the essential obedience of a child of God. And so this is how he ends it. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom before you. Can you imagine what these men were experiencing right here? This was a severe public rebuke of the leadership of Israel. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So what has happened? John has come, what? In the way of righteousness. What does that mean? That John's ministry prefigured 
in the ministry of repenting for sin and being baptized, it was a preaching of the gospel in prefigured language and demonstration that God's people come into the kingdom of God through repenting of their sin and being washed in the waters of cleansing by the Holy Spirit. All of which is going to be fulfilled and made manifest and possible by the death of Jesus. And by rejecting God's ministry in John the Baptist, what they were doing, they were rejecting the announcement that the Messiah had come to do the very work that John was prefiguring in the wilderness in these people's lives, coming to be repenting rather and coming to be baptized. That's what they're rejecting here. And Jesus is having none of it. He's having none of it. There is a time to quietly and carefully and gently rebuke. There is a time for that. And there is a time for loud, thundering condemnation and judgment. There is a time. We have to know when. And we certainly should not be afraid of the latter, the, 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 the outward rebuke. We shouldn't be afraid of it. It may cost us something. It costs Jesus something. But the issue is this. My response needs to be led by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in what word I want, uh, not instructed by, but uh, I can't find my word. Come give it to me. Uh, Whatever, okay. The Holy Spirit needs to be the one who does this in me. And so if he says, raise your voice and bring a word of judgment, do so. Informed. My response needs to be informed by the Holy Spirit, not informed by the cultural mandates and whatevers. And will he like me? Will he not like me? Will he be upset? Or will it bother him? Whatever. We need to be more concerned about upsetting God. So this week, let's be reminded of God being autonomous. He's sovereign. And let's be reminded and allowing and asking the Holy Spirit about my life and about what area, not if, but what area am I rebelling and rejecting God's autonomy. And so next week, we'll deal with the next two parables. Thank you.